0: Hello, and welcome to Decoding the Gurus, the podcast where an anthropologist and a psychologist listen to the greatest minds the world has to offer. We try to understand what they're talking about. I'm Matt Brown, and with me is Chris Kavanagh, the plucky little Irishman from the Emerald Sand Isle.
1: Sandwich, such Thank genuine
0: you. enthusiasm, Matt it's
1: uh, well, what a welcome it's inspiring how much enthusiasm you put into yep. that
0: i'm running out of material i'm running out of fresh ideas i'm getting stale well it's you've exhausted all work.
1: your classical science fiction and fantasy literature references so now why don't you go into <laughs> contemporary science fiction like the picard to my Riker, see
0: how about that the luke to my obi-wan yeah you're obi-wan yeah i'm happy to be over Yeah, see that way we both look good no one has That's to right. get put down yeah. we're a team there's no i in team chris
1: i also don't mind to be riker or picard they're both good in their own ways I, yeah
0: you you're probably more of a riker i think
1: i think i'm more of a Riker. you should see the way i get on the chairs <laughs> <laughs> deep star trek lower there yeah that's what yeah, you, no, Liam.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the things are not good, are they, in the Star Trek, Star Wars, multiverse? I mean, the new additions, the things are disappointing. People are upset. Nerds are throwing chairs uh, around.
1: Yeah, they uh, are. Star Wars and... I, I think, well, Star Trek, I only know that Liam Bright was disappointed with the new Picard season.
0: That's all I know. <laughs> yeah, all these things are not great. Too many reboots. They need some fresh new ideas. You told me they're making a remake of Willow. Yeah. They're really scraping the bottom of the barrel.
1: You said that Matt, but Willow was great Willow was the one with the big Tim Curry as the devil with the red prosthetic thing and camping around for the entire movie what? yeah yeah that that, that that does sound good <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't think he's going to be reprising the role for this one because he suffered an unfortunate stroke so oh. so
0: there's not, there's not going to be any rocky horror picture show too. With Tim.
1: Oh, no. You know what, Matt? I've just realized why I've confused you. This will blow all my geek cred to Smellarines. I told you Tom Cruise was in Willow, right? And I told you Tim Curry Ah. was vamping around as the devil. That's not Willow. That's that's legend. Is that
0: Caravan of Courage? The Ewok movie? No, that's
1: legend. I just looked it up. 1985 Legend. legend, Which is, I think, a terrible film, but, but a very enjoyable film because of all of the silliness in it.
0: What about... Is it labyrinth? The one that has the.
1: It's the, not called labyrinth. What? The, what kind of pronunciation is that? It's labyrinth. Labyrinth.
0: Labyrinth. There's more syllables labyrinth. than that, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. um, labyrinth.
1: Well, that <laughs> I, I kind of prefer that. Makes it sound like a TV show about a detective dog or something. Labyrinth. A singer that was in that Sting. Um, no, no. Oh God, wasn't Sting? It was David Bowie. Jesus Christ. (laughs) Sting, Sting, he was in (laughs) the the one with the worms. Um, God, (laughs) just imagine how angry all the nerds will be. (laughs) Look, we're one of you. It's just just not great memories. Sorry, nerds. Yeah, sorry. Sorry, you big geeks. Uh, (laughs) Speaking of big geeks, Matt, this episode this week is part of our tech season, and we're going to have an interview with someone who was a brand account on Twitter. That's pretty techy, right? Uh, involved in weird Twitter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So since it is our tech season, Matt, I think this needs to happen.
2: It's decoding the guru tech season. <laughs> tech season. Tech tech tech, 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 tech. <laughs> season. It's the guru. Tech tech tech, tech
0: tech tech season. Wow. Wow. And, yeah. and you made this all by yourself, is that right? <laughs> Can you tell?
1: Can you tell? It's not <laughs> professionally made.
0: A man of many skills. You continue to surprise and impress, Chris.
1: Yeah, it was made by the digital equivalent of cello tape and plastic straws taped together yeah. to create that compilation. So, <laughs> yeah, but that's right. It's part of our tech season. We kicked it off with, who was that guy? Jérôme Larnier. And he was, he was all right. He was a good start. Ease us in. Yep. We got the love yep. machine. Lex man coming up. Old old <laughs> Baba Love Man.
0: <laughs> yep. And we'll be shooting some love right back at him.
1: Love will save us all. But we got him. And, and today we have Nathan Alabac. I think it's pronounced Albach. I I looked up the pronunciation. But before yeah. that, we have to take a little jaunt into, you know, I don't like to indulge in vendettas and personal feuds. It's all so beneath me to comment on people who have dared to utter my name on the interwebs. you mean dragged into the mud. I, I have. Mm. Kicked and screaming by a sense maker. Can you believe it? Came up behind me and just started making sense <laughs> in my general direction. But by <laughs> my consent, Matt, I didn't consent to the sense making <laughs> enterprise. Um... No, he's kind of the opposite of a tech guru because he operates in the Jordan Peterson symbolic religious interpretivism space. He's more overtly religious than Jordan Peterson. Is One of his jobs is a religious icon carver. So there's that. And they look nice. I've seen some of the things that he's carved. But it is a guy called Jonathan Pajot. I came across him because he cropped up in... A bunch of material. Aaron Rabinowitz was complaining about James Lindsay discussing religion with Benjamin Boyce and this guy, Jonathan Pajot. Then I heard him in a three-hour conversation with Brett Weinstein about religion. And then noticed he had episodes up about Alex Jones. He's appeared on David Fuller. was interviewing Jordan Peterson's wife and whatever. And I made a little snarky comment online, not like me. What? Yeah. Can you believe that? Chris. I well, I, I mm-hmm. was trying to tell people, I I took some screenshots of the content that he appeared in and said, guilt by association or drawing reasonable inferences from somebody's pattern of affiliations and appearances. That was my point, right? It was a little dig to tell the sense makers and their cohorts that you can draw some relevant information from the types of conversation and who people choose to have indulgent conversations with. That was all I was saying. And I, I made it clear at that stage, I hadn't listened to his content, but the here was my priors and I give a list of things saying, I think you'll be anti-woke sense maker, highly symbolic religious interpretivism guy and completely fine with conspiracism and like right wing partisanship stuff. If he's chatting happily along Mm. with James Lindsay, that was it, right?
0: Mm. That was your prediction?
1: Uh, That was my prediction. Subsequently, lots of people, including Jordan Peterson, got upset at me for drawing inferences without listening to the content. But Matt, do they not know me? Of course, I will (laughs) go and consume the
0: content. They don't know how far you will go to win an argument (laughs) online.
1: So uh, that was just my opening line, you know, to say, I'm just adding people into the process. This is what I expect. Based on this. And it turned out that he didn't do any of that. And it was completely contradicted. And I admitted it was wrong.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You ate humble pie. yeah? No, 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 no,
1: I did not. (laughs) Let me play a clip for you, Matt, to see what kind of things I discovered. So he did a video breaking down the symbolism of Alex Jones' appearance on Rogan. And there was a lot of things that you could learn from that. For...
3: Example, this. So if you watched the uh, podcast, if not, I would suggest you do. It is long. It's four hours long, but it is worth watching because um, through the crazy discussion and the, the, you know, the extremely dramatic presentation that Alex Jones gives, there are some interesting things that you can get from what he says, some interesting things that can help you understand the structure of reality and how things lay themselves out. First of all, I have to say that Alex Jones seems to be someone who has a very good intuition about things. And he doesn't seem to have the right language to express them. He also seems to be caught in what I would call a kind of materialism, which means that his symbolic intuition is always pointed towards... um, a kind of materialist explanation. And that is actually the case about a lot of conspiracy theory. If you look at a lot of conspiracy theory, they tend to see the symbolic structures or symbolism or or if they see certain symbols appear, instead of seeing those symbols as pointing to principles or pointing to patterns of reality, they tend to see them as only pointing towards, uh, let's say, specific historical events
0: he means historical events like the Democrats taking adrenochrome from babies. Oh
1: my, that's too materialist. He doesn't want to get into the those grinds. <laughs> but you know, Alex's intuitions are great. They're fantastic. He's seen the symbolic patterns. His intuitions are great. You should listen to this four-hour conversation. But you know, he's, he he takes things a bit too literally. He doesn't have the right vocabulary. He's not sophisticated enough but what he's intuiting there matt really spot on don't you
0: mm-hmm. think uh, i'm just wondering whether we're talking about this maybe there's a different alex jones out there. Is this this crazy mix-up no, yeah no, it's, it's it's him it's him
1: so look you can hear the kind of jordan peterson line towards obfuscation right and the way that pajot would represent it is that he is looking at these kind of deep symbolic strands that run through culture and which he relates to his religious beliefs and so on. And he's not doing something so coarse as endorsing Alex Jones' adrenochrome farm conspiracies or that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Or is he?
3: The one thing that people are going to ask me is, am am I saying, first of all, that He's full of, you know, he he's delusional. I don't think he's delusional. I think that his intuition about what's happening in the world is absolutely correct. The idea that we have created a society of human sacrifice, the the if you cannot get away from the fact that um that abortion can often act as a form of human sacrifice. You just can't get away from it. Because you see someone who 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 makes the bet that they will have more power in the world. They will have a better life if they get rid of this unborn child. That is a form of human sacrifice. You, you can't get away from it. Get, getting The fact that you sacrifice one another life or your own is a form of human sacrifice. And so he is totally right in that.
1: There's a bit more, Matt, but I just wanted to stop it there for a second because There's the notion that representing abortion as what you're talking about with child sacrifice, right? First of all, Alex Jones does talk about that specifically. He's hugely anti-abortion. Like, Pajot is wrong about Jones because Jones is a religious fanatic. If you listen to his content, it's hugely infused with Christian theology and millenarianism. And he talks about abortion specifically being this kind of evil sacrifice perpetrated on innocence. Despite the fact that he has himself funded and had numerous abortions with his partners, he now basically argues that that's the greatest sin that we're undertaking. So he, far from disagreeing with Paggio, completely echoes this line that abortion is a form of child sacrifice. He just goes farther. And he talks about elites actually sacrificing children and blood sacrifices secretly behind doors, the Democrats and Hillary Clinton. Yeah. Do you think Pajol would be silly enough to endorse that?
0: If I had to guess, I would say that he's like Jordan Peterson, that he prefers to keep his religious, mystical, magical theorizing on a higher plane. But I have a feeling you're going to prove me wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Oh,
1: what gives you that idea?
0: I would have had the same
1: inclination as you. I thought, that's kind of where he would stop it, but he he didn't. So, that's listen on.
3: Whether or not this has reached the level of ritualized human sacrifice that uh, Alex Jones um, suggests, I don't know. I have no idea. I, I'm not in those. You know, we're not in those circles. We all of this becomes hearsay and rumor and uh, and, and and all that. And and it and it doesn't. And even though that it's this hearsay and rumor, it's not surprising that it goes in that direction. And it, it wouldn't be that surprising if it ended up being true, because those people who understand the power of ritual and who are looking to acquire uh, power to themselves, it would not be surprising that at some point they understand how this has always been a manner to acquire power. And you can see it in everyday life. It's not.
0: Mm, that's getting pretty concrete, isn't it?
3: It's not saying it's happening. It's just
1: saying if it was happening, it would be entirely non-surprising because it's something that elites would do. And have always done. <laughs> yeah. So you get that common guru thing where, you know, we've seen it with John Campbell, where he's saying, I'm not saying all people are saying, or I wouldn't endorse that, but I wouldn't say it's wrong. And it gives you that, like detachment. you never directly said that children are being sacrificed in adrenochrome farms, but you didn't tell your audience that you think that's a silly idea. Ilar, right? You got the best of both worlds. And if I talked to Peugeot, I would just put it directly to him. So are adrenochrome farms a complete stupid conspiracy, regardless of Yeah, yeah, the symbolic resonance, whatever. But in reality, are elites taking the blood of children to do ritual sacrifices? And he wouldn't like those questions, right? He'll just say, well, it's more about the symbolic reality and so on, because he doesn't want to directly endorse such outright conspiracism, but he wants to play footsie with it.
0: Yeah, like you say, it's a standard manoeuvre. I was listening to John Campbell today talking about these strange coincidences with monkeypox and the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and it was was so heavy-handed, Chris, so heavy-handed, this. I'm not saying that they did anything here, but, you know, make your own conclusions, that kind of thing. You could say it was a bit naughty of them to put that in, really. I'm not
4: saying that, but some people might say they were a bit naughty to put that in. Some of you may prefer your senior medical advisors not to have a potential, no no one's saying it's a conflict of interest, of course, but a potential apparent conflict of interest, as a cynical person might view it. Some of you may prefer that. So it's a pity that very senior people sometimes appear to have a potential uh, conflict of interest. Um, No one's saying that would result in them promoting a particular drug. Of course not. Uh, but, um, it's an apparent conflict of interest. You can decide. You don't need me to tell you what to think, do you? It's a huge amounts of money. And yet these people are making, um, decisions about the health of the entire population. Again, no one's saying that there's, there's any, um, ill practice here, but some of you might think it doesn't look good. Some of you might even suspect it does affect, uh, does affect decision making. That's not for me to say.
0: And you look at the YouTube comments, not surprisingly people get like getting the message loud and clear.
1: But you also see the people who are, you know, positively inclined towards him will then say, well, he didn't say that's what he thought. He's just talking about the possibility. And you're like, yeah, come on. Everyone knows what he's saying. Like, look at his audience response. And, uh, so with Peugeot, I pointed out these things, I made some threads highlighting this tendency towards conspiracism which I had pointed out that my priors were quite high towards and lo and behold they were met correctly and Pajot came across the criticism and he was not he was not impressed, Matt. Let's hear what he had to say.
3: Two weeks ago now, I'm not even sure time really flies. <laughs> some guy that I never heard of who runs a podcast called Decoding the Gurus, I guess, uh, kind of went after me on Twitter. At first he was going after Brett Weinstein, but then decided, I guess, to go after me. And, uh, anyways, he, he has the usual kind of, you know, dismissive new atheist tone. And I was going to ignore the guy, but then, uh, David Fuller from Rebel Wisdom and, uh, Other people that I respect, you know, said that uh, this is important that I should pay attention to it. But really, I'm not going to I'm not going to answer too much. But one of the things that this guy uh, attacked me on is here's one of the tweets. He said he's uh, talking to David Fuller and he says here, Jonathan Peugeot saying Alex Jones intuition are absolutely correct that abortion is a human sacrifice for power and that he would not be at all surprised if the elites were engaged in in ritual sacrifices. And so this was, of course, his big proof that I am uh, off, that I am off the rails, that I'm some kind of understand what I'm talking about. But I thought it could be a good opportunity, what sacrifice is, why we sacrifice. So that's, that's the introduction.
0: Mm. Okay. All right. Okay. So he hasn't responded yet, but you know, you put it to him, as we just heard, I think he's not impressed, but what you tweeted to him was a pretty fair reflection of what he said. So...
1: Yeah. And the video, this is an hour long video that he made about human sacrifice in In response. He flashes up my tweet, but this is how he frames it.
3: One of the issues that we see with a lot of these kind of new atheist uh, types and this kind of new atheist rhetoric is that they often act as if religion is this thing completely set aside in human behavior. And so they create a box called religion. And then they look at what's going on there, and they they uh, they just see it as some kind of aberration or some kind of strange behavior that humans are having. And because they don't they don't seem to want to connect the ritual uh, let's say religious behavior with other types of behavior or other types of regular behavior that humans have, then they find it very strange when other people do that. When I let's say if I try to explain how certain behaviors today are akin to sacrifice. I've done this not only in terms of abortion but in terms of in terms of war. for example, I've talked about uh, how we'll get we'll get to it. I've talked about how certain acts in war are very much akin to human sacrifice um, and so that's the problem. It makes it very difficult to engage with these types of people because, they're not really trying to understand why people would sacrifice in the place. Like, how did this happen? How did humans start to sacrifice? Once you start to ask those questions, then all of a sudden you get larger categories of human behavior and you can, you're able to understand why it would happen that sacrifice would be developed and why it is delusional. It, it really would be a strange delusion to notice that Sacrifice is a human universal, but that today, for some reason, we don't do that anymore. Nobody does that anymore. Nobody sacrifices. And of course, nobody uh, uh, participates in human sacrifice because, you know, we're so evolved that we would never do something like that. But I think that's really the blindness of not understanding what sacrifice is.
0: It almost sounds like he um, he has an interest in anthropology, almost. Um, The study of ritual... um... <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: It's the thing that's annoying about this man it's it's not just that, you know I I don't mind that Peugeot doesn't want to engage. I don't want to engage with him, you know. David Fuller, God bless him. He was sure we can have a productive encounter and reach across the divide. I I think it would have just been an unpleasant conversation for Peugeot because I would have directly put questions to him about conspiracism and that kind of thing. But this part about like the reason I've made this mistake is that I don't understand the ritual and religion are you know important in the modern world or that they touch any other aspects of life and I've got no interest in the history or the psychological effects of taking part in rituals or traditional imagery or any of those things. He's got me nailed, man. He's got me right down. He's got me right there. But it's. So, yes, he's completely wrong because that's my specific area of academic expertise. And it's the thing I've probably spent the better part of two decades focused on. But <laughs> it's it's more that he didn't just Google. You know, he made an hour-long video. He took the little tweet out and all that. And he, he didn't just spend 10 minutes to Google my name, or, you know, look up something just to see, oh, what's this guy about? Like, if he looked at my profile even for a minute, he might have noticed that it says cognitive anthropologist interested in conspiracism, radicalization, and religion and ritual psychology. <laughs> <laughs> right? At the top, my pinned tweet is a long thread about rituals and religion in Japan. <laughs> and counter to the image that I don't think the ritual in packs any other part of life, I published articles about non-religious rituals. Like I've written, (laughs) I've written encyclopedia (laughs) entries about what ritual does in human society and through evolutionary history. So that was annoying, but it's more that I know what he's going to do, right? I know that what he's going to do and what he does go on to do is to present human sacrifice as being... Well, look, when the military sends people to war, isn't that really a modern form of blood sacrifice for the nation? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And doesn't that, you know, are we really so different from the ancients that we like to look down upon? But no, Matt, that's not an insightful uh, insight. There's an article that I teach every single year by Carolyn Marvin and David Engel called Blood Sacrifice in the Nation. Revisiting Civil Religion. There's an article that came out just a couple of years back. Ritual human sacrifice promoted and sustained the evolution of stratified societies. This was in Nature by Joseph Watts. I also teach that. So this notion that nobody could have an interest or connect these Mm. like state, sacrificing the state to ritual practices, they did. Mm. Anthropologists have done it for decades and it, it does not mean that Alex Jones is very insightful. It does not mean that adrenochrome farms are plausible. And that's what the critique is. The critique was not drawing an analogy between the modern state and the sacrifice of children to like pre-industrial societies requiring that men fight in war bands or whatever. There are parallels there, but, uh, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so. I feel your pain. We all feel your pain, Chris. We're all very mm-hmm. sorry. That, uh, that would be upsetting.
1: Yeah. yeah. Look, it's not an indulgent thing. It's not an indulgent <laughs> thing. But I'm rebutting a sense maker who's made an error. And look, I'm gonna I'm gonna end this short rebuttal segment with with one point. So you could you know, he manages to go one hour and he never addresses the prominent conspiracies around child and human sacrifice today. He never addresses those, right? Quite an oversight given the ecosystem he exists in, but he does at the end return to the point of, you know, he's been talking about all these symbolic sacrifices. So what about actual sacrifice? You know, the point that I originally criticized him on and let's hear what he says in the the rebuttal video about that.
3: Let's get to the second part of the tweet that I said, that I wouldn't be surprised if elites engage in ritualized human sacrifice. Now, I'm not saying that they do. I don't know if they do, I'm saying I wouldn't be surprised if they did. And why would I not be surprised if they did? Because I look around me and I see that criminal syndicates use killing as initiation methods. They've used it for thousands of years, whether it's the Spartans or whether it's the Hells Angels, they use killing as initiation mechanisms. And and I'm not saying that all the elites function as uh, criminal syndicates, but there are certainly some elites that function as criminal syndicates. And to the extent that they function as criminal organizations and syndicates, and they use the same patterns and structures as, as the mob or the mafia or, or, or other criminal syndicates, then why would I be surprised that they, used, that they would use killing as initiation sacrifices? I mean, I don't know if they do, but I wouldn't be surprised if they did, because it's a human universal. And you see it in civilizations that date thousands of years ago, and you see it in the streets of big cities today. And so I don't, I don't see why that's weird. And I, it's only weird, like I said, for someone who creates a weird little distinct category called religion, a category that they don't understand.
0: That's You, you, you anthropologists are famous for this, aren't you? You take religion, you put it in its own little box, and you think it's not connected <laughs> to all the other things human yeah, beings are maybe. doing. You
1: just, <laughs> my, it's only weird. Only weird to people who don't understand religion that the thought that elites are engaging in human sacrifice regularly is implausible, that the Democrats are harvesting the blood of infants, it's only a silly conspiracy to people that haven't properly considered the mafia. The, <laughs> like uh. Jesus Christ, he is doing the Alex Jones thing, yeah. isn't right? He's doing it. He's just like he's almost not brave enough to directly endorse them, so he he has to add in a layer of plausible deniability. But he is endorsing them. He didn't change his stance. No. From the first
0: video. Yeah.
1: So he just added an hour of waffle. Yeah. Uh, to, yeah. Uh, 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 to make the same arguments.
0: Well, you know, it's part of the is and a different guru's flirt with, double with, play footsies with, or jump in with both feet into the concrete conspiratorial world. And, you know, Alex Jones, to his credit, he jumps right in there. You know, <laughs> he goes all the way. balls and all.
1: He does. But, you know, that's part of what my issue is, my is like, you can regard it as, well, you know, he doesn't, it's not like all his content is pointing people towards Alex Jones or blah, blah, blah. Alex Jones, just a week or two ago, when the kids were slain by the school shooter, was again positing that it's possibly a false flag attack by the government. And he tried to, you know, avoid directly insinuating this time that the children didn't die, but he still strongly implied that it was a politically yeah. motivated and organized event. And Peugeot told his audience, go, go listen to, go
0: check, him go check him out. Go check him out. He's got lots of um, insights, lots of important things to say that people need to hear. And actually, now you mention it, I did hear some of that from Alex Jones. And actually, Alex Jones does exactly the same thing, which is that now I don't know that this was a false flag, but...
1: It wouldn't surprise me if it was.
0: Wouldn't surprise right? me. That's
1: the thing. It's the exact same. <laughs> <laughs> they don't get it. So, Jonathan Peugeot thinks or like wants to frame it to his audience that it's atheist being intolerant of religious people. But it's not... Religious people don't have to do that. My family are all Catholics. None of them recommend Alex Jones, right? Like, I hate this way that Jordan Peterson and and others like him use religiosity and religious symbolic interpretation as a shield Mm -hmm. for their particular brand of politics and conspiracism. And that's what Jonathan Pajot is doing as well. He might be more religious than Jordan Peterson and take more Interest in the symbolism. Uh, uh, unbelievably, that seems to be the case. But he is the same in that, you know, th- it is not a religious yeah. thing that is making him say, I can't say that elites are not sacrificing children. Yeah.
0: It's a slightly more sophisticated veneer than Alex Jones, but inside of that is just the same box of howling crazy. You can't get away from that, yeah. I think. Yeah.
1: And you can, the thing is, you could have um, probably perfectly nice three or four-hour conversation with Jonathan about biblical interpretations or the iconography of mushrooms in
0: the Bible. Yeah. You can could, you could have a great conversation with Jordan Peterson about the symbolism of the entwined double helix and then land with him saying that you can see the molecules if you take enough LSD. You
5: can move your level of apprehension up and down from the micro level to the more macro level. And... You know, at the highest level of your consciousness, you can apprehend the most general ideas, and at the lowest level, very specific. Well, the question is, how far down the levels of analysis can consciousness go under extreme conditions? And so, and I said this was speculation, but I've seen these dual, they're often dual-entwined serpents. They're very common. And so, well, like I said, this is in the realm of wild speculation. But I know what Crick thought about the, the origin of DNA. Well, he thought he thought it was too complex to have evolved. Oh, oh, it. oh I
4: see what you mean? You mean the idea of it coming from from that elsewhere?
5: No, I mean I know that's an infinite regress okay, problem. But okay, that, that's what was. Okay, so that <coughs> was all that was, was behind that. that you know bit of speculation, which I normally would do ever done.
4: These coiling serpents. I keep. Going I think to come that back to under
5: that. some conditions, people can vision can expand to the point where they can see down into the micro level. They can apprehend the micro level consciously.
4: You think that our consciousness can extend down to the micro level, yeah. to the level of I do. Micro, the micro, micro, micro level of, yeah. of, 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 of DNA. Okay. Well, since
5: well, we're on this topic, I have taken extremely high doses of psilocybin.
0: <laughs> but, I mean, I think, I think at the kernel of it, there's an awful lot of abstraction and obfuscation and complexity and these cloud castles being built on top of it. But I think... At the very base of it is uh, just a nugget of rolled gold, pure crazy.
1: Yeah, and it's it's that notion that they just keep saying, it's really complicated. It's a very dense, it's difficult. You know, this is really interpretivist stuff. And that's just a, a shield against, if you state it plainly and directly, it's stupid. <laughs> it's, <laughs> uh, and that's I'm not saying no interpretivist stuff can be deep, but I'm saying you can use that that's just a way to hide shit opinions, and yeah. uh, and lots of people do it.
0: Agreed. Agreed.
1: Agreed. Aggrieved. This was my <laughs> own grievance mongering segment. I'm I'm sorry, but it was just.
0: Watch out! Watch out, Chris. Grievance narratives. Little... I know
1: I've got them now. I got the sense makers of drawing me down into <laughs> <laughs> that mud. But yeah, well, I thought that deserved some response. But we're going to have a nice interview now, Matt, where we don't talk about any of that nonsense no we'll get back to the world of tech yeah the the very down-the-earth gritty world of online brand accounts on twitter
0: <laughs> that's right we'll hear from a, a special one one uh that uh done pretty good with his brand account that's right so let's go now
1: okay so welcome nathan thank you for Joining us.
2: That's right. It's my pleasure. Stoked to talk, guys.
0: Matt, you're here too. Just, just in I'm case. <laughs> yeah. It's good to be with you uh, again. I'm, I'm joining you from ANZAC Day. That stands for Australia and New Zealand um, Army Corps. This is the day we celebrate all the wonderful things the military did. But I'm That's taking a break from that, from the various rituals and ceremonies, and taking time to be with you both. Happy day.
1: That's good. And we've brought Nathan here just to talk about uh, that topic specifically, <laughs> Australia and New Zealand. Uh, it's a uh, military day. He's a. Uh, I'm writing a thesis on that topic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Nathan is here in part because he previously, I think, recently stopped, but was running a brand Twitter account that had achieved some level of fame and notoriety, the Steakums account, which produced a bunch of detailed. Fred's, uh, I think it's fair to say, would put some researchers to shame on conspiracy theories and good heuristics for identifying reliable information and so on. So we wanted to bring Nathan on to talk about that account and, and how he ended up doing that and his interested in those topics more generally. And also broadly, the weird Twitter ecosystem, which Nathan has a much better grasp of and a lot of brand accounts seem to play in the water off, but yeah. So maybe a, a good place to start for anybody who isn't familiar is how would you describe what the Stickum's account did and like why it became, you know, a, a kind of popular meme. So it, what's the nutshell description of yeah, that?
2: Sure. Yeah. I mean, most people, if they have any familiarity with brands on Twitter or brands online, they they tend to think of Wendy's Twitter, which got famous in early 2017 for roasting people and just kind of developing the sort of sassy brand personality. And uh, brands have been doing that since like, you know, the early 2010s uh, on and off and some in more obscure ways that didn't necessarily get, get a lot of press coverage. Um, I would say denny's had a tumblr account in like 2013 that was pretty popular um that they then kind of moved to twitter and there was a couple smaller ones like uh, hamburger helper it's mostly food like like cpg or restaurant. yeah yeah mostly cpg or restaurant brands j- just like traditionally like with weird commercials and mascots like there's something about that part of the industry so wendy's was like the first one that like nationally put that on the map i mean it was literally it was covered on Anderson Cooper. It was this whole huge thing where people were like, what the hell is going on with this, uh, fast food account. So I actually had started working on the Steakum account, which for those who don't know, it's like this cheap fr- like frozen slab of meat product that that's sold in America and you know, you make like what we call Philly cheese sticks. I'm from right outside Philadelphia. It's just basically like a hoagie with, with meat and cheese. <clears throat> so. Uh, uh, yeah, hoagie like a sandwich. I don't know how I don't, know yeah, how cool <laughs> I don't know how colloquial <laughs> hoagie even is, <laughs> but um, so that was helpful. Yeah, just I just putting it out there for anybody. Um, So so yeah, I started working. I, I worked for an advertising agency, and we started doing work on this account in like 2016, and then by 2017, after this whole thing with Wendy's had already kind of taken off, I had proposed to the the client, you know, for us to to do this on on Twitter as well. And it was basically a blank canvas. So like the account didn't really have a following. Comparatively to Wendy's, which is a, a pretty large national fast food chain, and was mostly regionally based. So it didn't have like, it had some name appeal. Like it was kind of a meme over the decades, like kind of funny food brand. So some people knew what it was, but it wasn't huge. Um, so it didn't really have like this built-in following that we had to build from scratch. So 2017, I started messing around with it the client just didn't really take it too seriously because they were like, oh, this is, you you know, it's, who cares? Like, who's on Twitter even? Like, Twitter is not as popular as Facebook or these other platforms like YouTube. So it was kind of just an oversight, and I just spent a lot of time in these weird Twitter, what is, what is referred to as weird Twitter, which is this kind of niche subculture that really was one of the first subcultures that kind of grew into a lot of what we see now as like the ironic humor that makes up a lot of how people post on Twitter, which is just kind of sarcastic. And I call it irony poisoned. Like everything is just bizarrely framed and meant to be nonsensical, sort of datist in a way. Um, so we, we, I started playing around and some, some of these circles, the sort of weird backstory to why is because when I started working on the account, I had noticed that whoever was running it before me, well, it only had like a thousand followers, it was pretty inactive, but whoever was running it before me had blocked like two or 300 accounts. And I'm like, who are all these people? And I, I started going through and I'm realizing they're all weird Twitter people. So I'm like, oh, there's gotta be some history here. Like something must've happened. Sure enough, there was this whole thing where I guess the previous social media manager who was running this account had a uh, been kind of like had a weird run-in with some of these weird Twitter accounts where they would harass the brand, and then the brand blocked one of the larger ones. His uh, his handle was Boner Hitler. So this <laughs> this guy, um, he he had a big enough following, like ten thousand plus followers, where. When he realized he was blocked by Steak, stake, I made a whole like stink about it and then got all these other people from weird Twitter to harass this brand. So the brand just went on this blocking spree. So when I got a hold of the account, I unblocked all these people and I started engaging them in a kind of like tongue in cheek, self-aware way. Or it was kind of like, you know, I I shouldn't have blocked you all. Like almost like humanizing the brand in a way where it felt much more, um, yeah, just personable and less like corporate. Oh God, like how do I interact with these? weird people um so that really was what initially planted the seeds for the account to uh to get traction and then over time as i just got more comfortable like figuring out what the voice would be it it evolved it evolved into like cultural commentary i guess like you alluded to chris which is just like talking about like the problems in society and like media literacy and all these things that ended up kind of becoming these viral moments um, that snowballed between like 2017 and then 2021 uh when i which i just stopped running a few months ago so very uh yeah very strange kind of corner of the internet but in a, a weird roundabout way weird twitter birthed the brand and like also inspired a lot of the the weird brand stuff that you see in general on the platform yeah
0: so there's uh, a few other corporate accounts that have taken like a similar kind of line in terms of being, you know, lighthearted or satirical or ironic or whatever, to varying degrees. But probably your handling of the comes account was unique, I think, in um, doing quite substantive threads on topics like folk epistemics and science literacy and conspiracy theories. So I think that's something that really made what you did stand out.
2: Yeah, I think so. The first time I experimented with that, it was kind of on accident because in interacting with these weird Twitter groups, which evolved, as you guys know, when you're on Twitter, there's a million subcultures. So like over time of being on the platform, you kind of like naturally filter in to different groups or echo chambers, whatever you want to call them. Like there's library Twitter where it's just full of librarians. You got like parts of like the medical community. You've got anime fans. You've got what, what they call stands of various pop, you know, pop culture figures or singers or whatever. So we would kind of like stumble along, right? Like you'd start, you'd see a viral tweet, interact with it. Suddenly all the people in that bubble would start to interact with the brand then and you'd get this cross-pollination of groups. So along the way, I was just tweeting and figuring out like what is sticking with people and those threads early on, before they ever even went viral, I was realizing they were sticking with the audience a bit. So the end of twenty eighteen, I did this one that was this kind of like uh just commentary on like why young people particularly online are just acting strange. And in one one way I, I put was that they were flocking to brands. Cause we were actually getting through the commentary we were doing, we had been getting these like extremely vulnerable DMs from random people, mostly kids, like teenagers, college students, that would be like spilling their guts, you know, talking about their home life their relationships their mental health problems i'd be getting these messages through the brand account like what is going on like like why if i was a person struggling like why would i reach out to this frozen meat brand so this thread i originally did in 2018 was just kind of like a commentary on that it was like okay just as much of the analysis that you guys have done that others have noted the past few years you know the sort of uh growing societal distrust and, and, you know, rising inequality and kind of the doomerism we see in culture, all these kind of compounding variables as, as I saw them pertaining to why some random kid would reach out to a brand like this. And that, that took off then. And then everybody was like, why is this frozen meat brand doing commentary like this? Like, this doesn't make any sense. And, and then to, to my knowledge, I think I was the first, Stakem was the first, brand to have like viral success through those long form threads. Cause it is a very unconventional, uh, way. now, now you see threads a lot more like with public figures, but especially a few years ago, like they just weren't as common of a popular form. Like people like the sharp witty short tweets. So to see that, um, to see like that serious kind of commentary juxtaposed with this frozen meat brand, I think that those two things combined really is, or what made it a pop off.
1: And I'm just curious as well, Nathan. When you decide to do that, like if you want to make a thread like that, do you have to get it signed off in advance, or is there like you know you have the freedom to experiment, like with leeway? Because I imagine, like if you were a brand account and the the brand guy started promoting QAnon conspiracies <laughs> instead, you'd probably get a lot of engagement as well, but the The brand might not like it. So it seems online misinformation or that kind of thing, it also attracts attention, right? There's people that would not agree with the kind of things that you were talking about. So I'm just wondering in that respect, like how much freedom you have? And do you get much of the flip side of, you know, people saying gums is part of the illuminati
2: oh yeah always yeah always like well especially in the rise of like as we've all seen the woke brand trend especially in the aftermath of uh like the blm protests of 2020 where there's this kind of like uh coalition of brands that all came together in a very short period of time suddenly like never having this as part of their messaging in the past all of a sudden being like you know we're pro black lives matter racial equality like like they overnight changed a lot of um I don't want to say like fundamental pillars, but like clearly their outward PR and their messaging shifted with the culture. So I think in a similar way, we and I were lucky that the things that I were saying, they fit roughly within the status quo. I mean, like to answer your question directly, this account is very unique in that I did have a lot of freedom. And from the very beginning, this whole thing was very like a happy accident, like no one including the client, no one expected the brand to go viral, to have the level of success that it did. So there was no like guardrail system in place beforehand. So then once it started going viral, it was kind of like, okay, the the ship's already taken off. Like now we just have to kind of control it as we go. And then the client, I mean, there's like a four or five or no, it was five year client relationship we had with them. And you know, there's a lot of trust built into that relationship that allowed me, as like a, a writer to be in and, and person, you know, putting together these thoughts to make sure, because you, you guys know this, like when you're, when you're tweeting things from any perspective, like, unless there's certain shit posters who they don't give a shit about how their content's received. But if you're trying to put ideas out there, unless you're the kind of person who just can like post and then log off and not worry at all about the backlash, which is nobody like 1% of the population you have to like consider all of, like the, the caveats and the nuances and like thinking like 4d chess like how do i get four steps ahead mm. of what backlash i might get from this group or that group so there was a, a lot of thought that had to go into these threads and if i had a, a corporate bureaucracy trying to edit and refine that along the way i don't think it ever would have would have worked so it was kind of anomalous in that way
0: mm, yeah but it must have um taken a really high degree of trust from this corporation to yeah allow you to just you know give you your head basically and and do what you thought was responsible and was not going to embarrass them and would still be interesting and informative and funny and all of that stuff i'm just kind of amazed that it happened to be honest
2: i mean yeah <laughs> it happened. same and it was a weird ride too because like you have to imagine, especially the early times when it would happen, it would, it would happen so quick in the zeitgeist. So like the tweets would go viral usually overnight. So like I would tweet them in the afternoon, they'd pick up steam and eventually start taking off in the evening. And then the next morning we would be getting all these calls from like, we, we would got calls from the, the one we did with the Neil deGrasse Tyson that went viral. We we were kind of beefing with him where he, he made some comment it was like a kind of standalone quote. He said. Science is the, the great thing about science is that it's true, whether or not you believe it. And we were, we said, log off, bro, they're going to pretty snarky way. And then we, we followed it up with this kind of like epistemic takedown of like why that n- isn't necessarily great messaging from our point of view, <laughs> which is yeah. again, ridiculous coming from this brand. But literally <laughs> that next morning, we got a call from Fox news on behalf of, uh, Tucker Carlson to come on and, and talk about this whole. I'm sure it was like a slow news day in the culture wars for him to to reach that low, but it was that uh, we've we've gotten a lot of those those types of calls from news organizations from all across the political spectrum. Just because it's like a it's goofy, it's perceived as like a, I think a fun escape from the more serious things going on, and, and of course the client relationship regarding that it was very tumultuous because they were like, "What the hell do we do? Like, how do we reply?" We had to turn down most of them because we just couldn't react quick enough in terms of what would be brand safe or, or whatever, you know?
5: Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. That's it's a, it is a bizarre situation to be in. And I guess it related to that is I've seen, I'm sure you've seen as well, Nathan, that although people like Matt and myself were very appreciative because the friends were just good, they, they were like good information, but I seen some reaction from a couple of disinformation researchers, particularly people that are lean more lefty, right, that they kind of were like, this is a corporate account, it's giving information, but never forget that it just wants to sell your process. Me right? too. Totally. And then, yeah. yeah, but then I also saw that you did a thread at some point, which basically made that point yeah. directly saying, you know, don't trust us or any other corporate account, we are here to market and, and sell, processed uh, meat, steaks and, and yeah, but I wondered because you're a person and your identity is known, or at least it's relatively easy now for people to identify you, I was curious about that because like, presumably you have some interaction or at least are aware of the people, you know, if people are like, be careful of the Steakums account, it's a PSYOP and then you know who they are and they know who you are It it is this weird thing where like what you're criticizing nathan the person yes, yeah. um as well so i just wonder about that dynamic at uh, like how to manage it or how to react to it
2: oh i could talk about this for hours it's yeah it's an ongoing tension and i think to, to what you were pointing to before, like that sort of uh, meta self-awareness of the brand, in large part, I think that was probably one of the leading, the leading contributing factors to its success because it created this sort of, it, it worked in two ways. It created an armor against exactly what you just said, where critics can say, hey, this is propaganda, this is like a corporation co-opting you know, the language of po- our politics or our movement or whatever. It can say any of those things but the brand's already said them. So it's like, okay, like the brand's admitting this. And not just like one time. Like I, I made an effort, if you go through the threads that I've done over the years, like I made it an effort to say in almost every single one of them, and if not every single one of them, just to, to kind of like remind the, the consumer or the user of, of what the interaction just, and I know you guys, you guys have touched on this as well, like the sort of inevitable parasociality of, of like mm. interacting with public figures and brands and just any kind of media where like you, it's, it's inevitable. Like we just assign senses of credibility and authority to to figures that we're consuming with any degree of trust. And it's so important to always caveat, always remind people like you have to like, like you guys are saying, you can take the information for what it is. And if it's good information, if it stands on its own, then that that's great. Like you can take from that what you will. But it is also important to remember the why of, of where that information is coming from. Like, what is the function of it, of the, the the perpetrator of it? Like in this case, it's a brand trying to sell you products. So if you're okay with that dynamic, all good, like whatever. I mean, if you, as long as you're aware to it, like that's, that's fine. We all deal with advertising to some extent, but if you're not aware to it, and that can become a pretty serious problem and it speaks to the sort of depths of our, uh, our media literacy crisis in terms of just people turning their brains off when they, when they get some kind of fuzzy, entertaining rhetoric thrown in their face where they're like, oh yeah, this sounds good. I agree with this. Or that's, that's fun. That, that, that kind of provoked me in a way. I like that. And then all those like critical thinking, uh, senses just turn off. And that was definitely something I was hyper cognizant of, uh, throughout the, the tenure of running the account. And, um was, it was difficult for me. I mean, like, I, I don't know, like I, I come from a pretty left-leaning perspective and and I can empathize and sympathize in some ways with, with a lot of the the folks who have, have, have kind of leveraged that criticism at me. And I've, I've spent, uh, a lot of time, um, directly, uh, speaking with them, um, engaging with them and just reading, you know, their perspectives. So I don't feel, um, I don't, I don't agree with all of it, but I do think just like with, with what you guys are doing, I think there's certain, um, people who will, would consume your podcast and think like, okay, you know, like I don't agree with the way they characterized, you know, Jordan Peterson like this, but I see the value and the critique here. It's, you know, I think there's, there's something to that where like, you don't, if there's like a self-awareness to it, you know, it, it kind of, uh it unloads the burden a bit, you know, to be able to actually like hear, hear what people are saying. And that's personally, that's always what's helped me deal with the tension is just kind of like, I really do try to take a step back. Even even when it's like, we all know on Twitter, it tends to be really aggressive and and spite driven. You know, I tend to try to take a step back, remember where they're coming from, even if there's like sarcasm or hate or whatever kind of laced in it and try to pick out, you know, the the truth of the criticism. Because I think there's There's always value in that if if you can uh, stomach it, you know.
0: I've read through all of your threads uh, this morning, actually. I've seen some of them before, but I read through them all again. And you're quite right. You do emphasize that, hey, I'm just a corporate account trying to sell you meat, remember? (laughs) (laughs) And without blowing smoke, I'll just say that they are good. Like the content is good. It's well-informed and it's good advice. Like you said, the content matters so it's obvious for somebody who would be reading those tweets from there they could see that it is authentic it's good material you emphasize that hey i'm a dude running a corporate meat account and that's a very healthy thing i mean what chris and i often emphasize is that we're a pair of mediocre academics milk toasty liberal lefty types so that's gonna these are our opinions but just like Brian's saying in life for brian you know don't follow me think for yourselves you, you do not and i think that's the big difference when you look at some of the more toxic and pernicious influences out there they don't tend to do that they do the opposite in fact
2: yeah and i, I do think yeah it's really tough to even when you do remind the audience of that consistently like it's just at a certain point I don't know if we were planning to get into this at all, but there is just, it's unavoidable to kind of create a cult-ish personality around yourself uh, at some degree. I mean, I already, I'd wonder to kind of turn it back around on you guys, if you've discussed this in the past, but like, as your show has grown, obviously like anytime something grows, like whether it's a public figure or a group or a media publication or a brand, it, it kind of takes on a life of its own eventually. And... I do wonder, like, at, just as with the brand, we, over time, you just develop these kind of cult followers. And there's a certain language, like, I don't know, in, in comedy, you call them, uh, like, bits. Or in, like, journalism, you call them beats. Like, kind of recurring things that you talk about that kind of become part of your personal brand or whatever it is. Like, whether it's things you discuss on your show that become, like, that regulars attach themselves to. Or, uh, you know, just jokes that kind of become, like, insider jokes. Like, these are all things that Contribute to the parasociality that, that comes from uh, consuming any kind of medium or media, and that's definitely something that happened with the stake of account. And I think the criticism of of what you, what you guys have just both laid out, I don't think I don't think being self aware to that necessarily like negates the criticism. I think the criticism can stand valid on their own. Um, the self awareness from the from the vantage point of the brand, the self awareness is just another tool to market the brand. It's kind of this, like, it's referred to as like anti-marketing in the industry, which is just kind of like when you see ads that intentionally position themselves, like they're poking fun at themselves, like we're not like those other brands, you know, we're like one of the cool self-aware brands. And that's, it all, it all eventually plays into itself from a brand's uh, perspective. And I, and I think similarly, like from, from any guru figure, like even up to Trump, where like all, all press is good press to certain um the figures and certain and uh, certain forms of media so i do i do wonder like i don't know if you guys have discussed this at length with your show as you've kind of continued to to grow in the in this sort of culture war space have you uh dealt with that kind of like blending at all where you guys are kind of becoming the gurus as you uh decode them yourselves
1: yeah i i think well we have discussed audience dynamics and also what like what we encourage or don't encourage and i i think as your audience grows the the things that you have to consider do change like it was fine when there's a thousand people listening to be very nonchalant about your impact. But if you have a hundred thousand people listening, then things are different. But aside from that, I think your the point you raise about you know if you address a criticism before someone makes it, it takes the venom out of it because, like you know when someone says, You're you're neoliberal shills, and you're like, yeah, well, we said so. And I do think there is an element of that where you can't help but have that be slightly strategic when you do it. We covered counterpoints, and I think this would be a slight difficulty about covering the left-wing YouTube breadtube ecosystem is that there's a lot of ironic, self-referential humor it takes the criticism that you might make and they do it themselves. So like if you're doing what we kind of do and you comment on a piece, but they've just said the joke about themselves, it inoculates them. And I recognize that from in academia, when you write a paper, you should have this section, which is called limitations. On one hand, limitations exist to tell people what the problems and potential drawbacks with your paper are. But on the other hand, it exists. So that you can say, I already thought about that <laughs> and I already said, it's an issue. Way ahead and you? <laughs> I, I, Yeah. And I think those two things, they're hard to take out. So on that aspect, I I think it is good. And there's, there's a genuineness to preempting criticisms that people might have. But there is an element of it where you point out, simply acknowledging it doesn't actually mean that you've dealt with the the problem or the the critique, might you might have some different thoughts about the parasociality and that kind of aspect,
0: though no, I agree with everything you said there, Chris, but like a different part of what of Nathan's question was the sort of audience capture and the parasociality and the relationship you have with people who listen to you. and I can remember a few times when, i felt just a tiny bit uncomfortable because it felt a little bit like somebody maybe liked us too much. <laughs> like you really, um, and, but that's relatively rare. And I think even in those cases, it's more that I'm kind of sensitive to that. And I don't, we really do not want that. Like we wouldn't want to have an Uber fan, like some of our gurus have Uber fans where it doesn't matter how crazy they get or what they say those Uber fans are on board, no matter what, and. I'd like to think that we don't have many, if any, listeners like that. I think even the people that do like us in that sort of, you know, slightly parasocial, but, you know, I don't think parasocial is always bad, obviously. You know, there's a lot of authenticity there as well. And I think even the people that like us personally are pretty comfortable disagreeing with us as well. So I think that's good. And I hope that what we try to channel is the thing that I like best about academic culture which is that despite all the backbiting and the vanity, it really is one of robust critique and debate. And you can have people that respect and like each other a great deal and at the same time are going at it hammer and tongs, chipping away and pulling up criticisms and finding flaws. And the other party appreciates that because in responding to those, either rebutting them or maybe elaborating their view in order to accommodate it, They know that it's making their position, their model, whatever, stronger. So ideally we'd like to foster that kind of thing.
1: That one other thing I just want to add to what Matt said is that the fact that me and Matt are like our primary identity is not podcaster, it's academic and we do this on the side, right? And I, I see that with some other podcasts that I, I like, like the very bad wizards, right? They're also academics. They teach and they have a successful podcast and i think that helps inoculate to some extent from getting culture war brain where like it's all about the the twitter debates or the most recent sam harris thing is i would worry more if i was leaving academia and just becoming a podcaster that that would be a dynamic but when you have this other aspect of your life which is detached from that or separate it feels like that creates a buffer yeah, it's, is one thing I would
2: say. I think like it's interesting. I guess like for, I know like, I'm, I don't mean to turn it around on you all during the interview, <laughs> it's but right. it's it's interesting from my perspective just because sort of like I was saying earlier, a lot of the space is I don't know who originally said this or if anybody originally said it, but the quote as as I hear it often is that in in social media culture, brands are trying to be people and people are trying to be brands, and there's like this constant tension where like you. Yeah, you're you're constantly like in this space where like, and I see it within academia. I see it within the medical community. I see it within journalism. Where like with social media, people like you might be an expert in like some field, but now you also have this sort of online persona that you manage, which is like people come to you for your takes on things. And I think with you guys, like there is, I I sign off. I would sign off on everything you uh, you both just noted. I would definitely say part of the. The sort of armor, and I think you share this with the very bad wizards guys to to some degree, is the sort of impartiality to how you you try to cover a lot of these figures. Like I, obviously to to a listener, there's going to be biases bleeding through. Like you said, you're you're both left ish leaning, liberal leaning, but there's not like a underbed of ideology that you're trying to like prescriptively draw people into like that that's how Mm. I always felt like years ago I remember like when the majority report started covering like Dave Rubin and like being Mm -hmm. the kind of first media organization to really critique him and I I was drawn into that Like I was I kind of had a a brief period where I was like fascinated by Rubin and like Peterson like in 2015-16 and I remember getting like hearing those critiques and I was really into it but like very quickly realized like man this is kind of like unless you were already on the fence i guess this is preaching to the choir a bit like the the idea is prescriptively like we're not just here to deconstruct dave rubin or whoever like we're here to pull you to our ideological camp so i, I definitely i don't get that that vibe from you guys' show and i think that helps you know I, I, but i guess from those leftist point of view they would just be like oh well they are like this neoliberal status quo whatever <laughs> But but it's not as overt, so I think that's like a yeah. helpful respect
1: know. the WHO. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. corporate shills yeah. over here. Yeah, but obviously we get it from the right as well. We, that we we do have listeners who are right leaning, and I respect the hell out of them for bearing to listen to us, frankly, because you can tell that it kind of hurts them, and it feels mm-hmm. to them as if we're these
2: like woke. Well, all of Chris's hey, snide you know, remarks. I mean, yeah, it's just. They think
1: they think we're candy apostles because we didn't find him like we didn't tear him apart in the episode that we did, but like that candy episode just constantly comes up, and I don't sign off on Candy's approach to things, but i I do feel like most of the people that make comments about candy, I'm not sure totally. they've listened to anything that he's you know they've seen some Twitter threads, and I'm not saying that that doesn't mean. You can criticize people for the social media clips or whatever. I'm, I'm not doing it. Jordan Peterson, you know, listen to his 20 hour lecture series because I don't even think they exist. But I mean, the format of our show is we take a piece of content and we look at it and then we look at the stuff that's in that content. And in the content that we looked at with Candy, it just it wasn't that bad as compared to like lots of the guru figures that we look at. But in any case, it doesn't matter. There's a whole bunch of people that are convinced that our goal is to spread the gospel
2: of St. Candy. Yeah, you won't, you won't be able to please everybody in that in that way. I mean, it's just because it's like, it's like the both sidesism, journalism conundrum, where like if you try too hard then to like lean in where there isn't a, a critique, then you just weight it in a way that it shouldn't be weighted. Like now you're just kind of forcing something that isn't there. I mean, again, not like you said, not that there aren't critiques there, but I think it's more honest from your point of view, you know, to to critique it as you see it, and not try to make stuff up or, or push it just for the sake of some arbitrary balance, because you're n- you're never going to find that balance, no yeah. matter who's listening. So,
1: and Nive, yeah. I have a question. It was kind of spurred by I read recently this Vanity Fair piece, which is looking at Curtis Yavin, Yarvin Yavin, the neo reactionary, like the new right, right? Yeah, yeah. And I I hated that piece. I really hated it because it felt like a piece out of time it felt like a piece from 2016 when people were talking about the alt-right kind of criticizing it and saying you know yes it, it, it's doing all this stuff and it's anti-immigrant and so on but at the same time the pieces were like slightly fawning or making them cool then, like yeah yeah and that's what this piece does again but it, it's doing things like saying normies like us wouldn't believe that they think institutions need to be torn down or that. And I'm like, what normies are you talking to in 2022 that after Trump, that that think, oh, it's strange that people would be critical of mainstream politicians and institutions. The question I had for you around that was that piece was very much highlighting that there's a, a, a kind of layer of irony protecting people whenever they make these extreme statements right they'll say something very extreme about like women not being able to vote or something but then they'll you're never quite clear is that irony or is that them revealing what they do and the author seemed badly equipped to navigate that and like i i said with the leftist content which i've seen as well it's a similar thing where there's ironic references to gulags or this kind of thing. Oh, yeah. Right. And it's it's passed off as kind of well, that you know, it, it's obviously a joke. But there are tankies. And I I wonder about from your experience in those ecosystems where there's there's so many layers of irony. Do you have any recommendations about navigating that? Or like how do you deal with the fact that the the internet is now just a machine dripping? with irony from every pore. And like taking it seriously is kind of presented as you're missing the point, right? Or you're you're too pofiest if you think the neo-reactionaries, they're really just, they're neo-Nazis in, in slightly better clothing.
2: Yeah, this has been, it's one of the most frustrating talking points or issues that I, I deal with, especially with a lot of left-leaning friends of mine in recent years, because I can remember in 2016, 2017, when the sort of predominant talking point on the left regarding the sort of uh, right-wing trolls like Milo Yiannopoulos and Gavin McGinnis. Like, there, there was this idea like, you know, even if they're saying this thing ironically or as a joke, there's still harm. And because it's it could be a dog whistle, we can't discern the sincerity of it. So it doesn't really matter whether it's sincere or not. We need to take it seriously. And, and even before predating it, but uh, not as much to, to much of a degree, I think since then, that same sort of like irony poison has come up like you said on the left not just like with gulag talk but killing landlords like there's all these kind of like talking points that people on the left have that like due to their sort of ideological bend it becomes a very self-justified comment or critique and then it becomes this thing where like a lot of these especially a lot of them are young people so you got a lot of these people who then are doing it as kind of just part of the group. Like, I'm going to make this joke because everybody else is making this joke. I want to fit in. Um, But just like with the alt-right in 2016, 2017, you don't know who's sincere about it. And inevitably, there will be some, even if it's 0.1% or whatever, there will be some percentage of people who do take it seriously. Um, And I think, unfortunately, there's not really... and So I guess point being, there isn't really a way. Like, from then to now, there is no way to, like, easily... Or even like moderately discern, you know, when these people are sincere or not. And I think that's why to me, it's just always better to err on the side of just not doing it. And when you see it, like you don't have to, I'm not saying like you have to 100% assume that the person's acting in bad faith. But I think when people do assume that, that's a safe assumption because like it's just become the norm in uh, these these more extreme ideological camps, I mean, this is literally the white nationalist or far, however you want to, some people refer to him as a white nationalist, far right, whatever. But um, Nick Fuentes, Fuentes, who essentially made Holocaust denial comments and and made tons of comments about the Jewish people. And it's very, he in years past didn't really try as hard to cover it up. Like he kind of just tried to be as edgy as he could be. And then then he essentially got no fly listed and now he's banned from every platform. He, but he still has a cult following. Like, he's still a guru. And he's a—he's only, like, yeah. 24 or something. So he's got this huge following. of the, They call themselves the Groipers online, which is this kind of, like, new right that's split off of the old far right, like the Richard Spencer types. So now these guys are, like, doing the same content, but it's much more masked. And, like, now it's like, well, how do you know? if Did these people change? Like, maybe are they not as radical now? Or are they still just as radical? They're just kind of sounding... A little less extreme, and you run into this issue where it's like there is literally the only way to discern it case by case is by like going through each individual figure's history, like looking up all their logs and videos of them speaking. And it's like for for a layperson, like somebody listening to this podcast who just kind of like consumes as as part of like their daily entertainment or whatever for news, you're never going to be able to accurately discern this person by person. So it's really it's a frustrating part of the ecosystem of like internet culture and we were talking a little bit before the show like there's a long history of like where this sort of like irony style of content or ironic style of content has come from and it's at the point now where everything is so centralized that it's showing demonstrable harm I mean like just like we saw all those shootings in like 2018 2019 you know the, the manifestos of how these people are are thinking about and writing about the extreme topics they're covering, it's, it's all laden with irony and like in jokes and dog whistles and you don't know what's what, even if somebody wrote a handbook on this, there is no like one-to-one way to figure it out. So I try to just tell people to stay clear. And you know, if you see it, if you're trying to make like a, a hard line assumption, you just have to go through that person's catalog and, and history to figure out if it's the real deal or not, cause it's a nightmare to navigate. <laughs>
0: I'm feeling increasingly guilty listening to you because I'm I'm thinking about my own tweets and stuff and how many of them are tongue in cheek and ironic (laughs) and even trollish sometimes. Just yesterday I tweeted, we could censor maybe 90% of tweets with little loss. Uh, which was kind of intended, <laughs> to <people. laughs> but that's exactly what you're talking about. And some of my favorite accounts, like I really like Liam Bright is a popular philosopher on Twitter and he is, um, very much super ironic. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I actually, so I just really enjoy that, but I'm also agreeing with everything you said so. Um <laughs> I mean don't tell a new here. Yeah. <laughs> What what I'm what I'm wanting to do is defend I'm still gonna to try to defend it. It is I mean what I would like to think is that when people do take me too seriously, I do say, I'm joking. This i just being You serious. block and mute them.
5: Un-
2: then, you know, <laughs> know, is that a joke or is that serious? I don't you yeah. <laughs> know. Yeah. It's meta all the way down, so <laughs> <laughs> um yeah
0: so I I I feel like at least up till now until hearing you talk I've tried I've squared this circle with myself by telling myself that you know I've got two voices and I'm hopefully inserting enough signposts that people know when I have my tongue in my cheek. <laughs> uh, Chris is sh- you're shaking your Just, head. You
1: know that's backfired for you when you've attempted to be sarcastic and then some followers treat you as being serious and then the option is either to say to them this was a joke which you missed or or to respond to their heartfelt comment and like ignore that it was a joke so you you've caused yourself difficulties not that i'm better but but it's my
0: like, i'm consistent a, what the, yeah you are consistent i'll grant you that um but i mean what's the solution here we either put the the crying laughing emoji in every tweet like that or do we do we always tweet in a po-faced serious earnest manner
2: I, I mean I it's an impossible balance to strike I do the same thing I mean I still shitpost here and there I've I've been trying to lean more into what I what we just call sincere posting on Twitter more but I think what you all both know and I think what most people know intuitively nobody likes sincere posting like people <laughs> yeah. people like shit posting like it, it's more entertaining like it just and it also it, it gives you again, just like we're talking about the sort of self-referential um, critiques, it gives you a sort of armor of um, uh, probable yeah. cause. Like you can kind of be like, yeah, uh, you have a way out if if something gets taken the wrong way. And and it's also just like it's it's literally a spoonful of sugar. I mean, just like people, comedians, like half of why Joe Rogan is so popular. It's like he, when you listen to Joe Rogan's podcast, like he's saying like. Very serious commentary, but he's a quote unquote comedian. So, like, if he makes some jokes along the way, it's like way easier for the audience to digest. And, you know, I mean, Chris, you do this like, you're, you're a pretty, like, you have a very, um, like a, a fun sort of sense of sarcasm that I know some people hate. I mean, I think it's, I think it's like a good, <laughs> I think you have a pretty decent balance of like, you know, not going so far as to like cutting people down, but also like not being afraid. To add a little bit of mockery and like a little bit of fun into like engaging, because that's you have to to be successful in literally any field. Like you have to have some level of edge, like a, a of provocation, or else no, or else you're just reading an academic paper, and no one wants to read academic papers. So like I, I don't, there there has to be some blend. That is that is the correct blend, but it is a it's a moving target. So I, I don't know what the solution don't, is. There. Nathan, don't neg Matt like that. He's excited. <laughs> <Jesus>.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah. No,
1: I I think that both Matt and I, I have the same sense that one of our like pet heads, and it's not just because of academia. It's also just because of our personality. Is the pofiest seriousness with which so many gurus and online pundits take themselves. And I, I think there is a genuine value to just piercing the pretentious bubble of people. And you can still take their content seriously and, and analyze it and take it apart. But just, you know, pointing out the absurdities of Eric Weinstein saying he wears a jacket because he wants to let people know that he's the elite in waiting. Or Jordan Peterson showing up their conversation for a podcast in a priest suit, tuxedo
2: looking, yeah, he just a bow tie, doesn't he? Sometimes, or maybe, I mean, he know. had
1: a he had a white freaking bow tie last time. It was you know was like, like you have one. to be able to
2: joke about that, like that, like that's just yeah. you know, like even if you're the person doing it, I don't know. Like I have a mustache right now. If I walked, I don't know I, more people have mustaches these days. I guess it's kind of trendy, but there's certain things you can wear and 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 present yourself as like you have to have some kind of self awareness as to like how you're looking in with a particular audience and I don't know. Yeah.
1: And then I think there's a important difference between like I would say for example, you know, you talked about the shooters' manifestos and the shit posting content that was in the New Zealand, the Christchurch shooters manifesto. And that to me is a good example of like how confused so many people get in that space. Like notably Sam Harris and the conversation I had with him, but many others just were completely flummoxed by the including of shitposting because they were like, how do we know the ideology, right? There was a copy pasta and he made some jokes about 4chan stuff. So it could be any ideology. (laughs) It's like, no, it can't. Not in that case, no. (laughs) Yeah, the great great replacement is the title. It's like 80 pages long of, it's posting, but with pure right-wing content. And I think that kind of thing, we have to treat in a different category than Matt's (laughs) (laughs)
0: me.
1: <laughs> <I'm> like he, <laughs> totally. you know, And uh, ContraPoint's content as well, I think she's using irony and she is using it sometimes to deflect criticism, but it's very different than like the way Ben Shapiro or Steven Crowder utilizes that. I'm not saying all leftists are the same as ContraPoint in this, but there is a difference between raising a thing which you think is a legitimate critique. And poking fun at it, but also showing that it is an issue, which I think, for example, you did in your threads and raising an issue and making fun of it, so that it can never be used against you. But it's just a strategic thing. It's it's a bit like the strategic disclaimers we sometimes get questions about. Well, what's the difference between a strategic disclaimer and a genuine disclaimer? And it's it's hard to explicitly explain that, but it is often clear in the surrounding behavior that you can see. The person didn't mean that they don't have any certainty about this and they're just discussing possibilities, conspiracy, hypothesizing. Whereas when people make genuine disclaimers, it tends to show that they they have a genuine level of uncertainty and an openness to be corrected on things. So yeah, just Matt's sarcasm is not the same as the Christchurch shooter. Uh, yeah, that's no, my no Sorry, comment. Matt. I don't mean to. You know,
2: <laughs> I, I think I think it's safe to say. I mean, like like many things are. I think there's a spectrum of ambiguity, and I think like when you have the sort where you have, if Matt's sort of shitposting style is at the base <laughs> of that, and then maybe there's like a, like a couple notches above, you have the Stakeham threads where it's like there's again a very sincere message, but it's also juxtaposed with the, the irony that it's coming from a, a a meat brand and it's kind of self aware, but it's still propaganda. And then you have like the, the maybe a couple notches up there. You have ContraPoints where ContraPoints does use a, a hell of a lot of shitposting and, and irony to kind of, like you said, I don't think only deflect criticism, but also, again, blur some of um, what her intentions or what her positions are on things because she doesn't want to get pinned. That's. It's she's an interesting phenomenon because like I think most of why she's started to do that more over the years is because she's been, quote unquote, canceled so many times. It's like she's now trying to, like, again, play that 5D chess of constantly predicting what mobs of people on Twitter are going to to say about her video and then react to that in the video. And it's all very self-referential. But to your point, I still think even even though there is a level of ambiguity to that, I don't think many people come away from her videos thinking that they don't know where she s- sits ideologically. I think you could safely be like, okay, maybe she's somewhere between like a social democrat or a democratic socialist, maybe she has some anarchist tendencies, but you can safely say she's like far leftish. I mean, like comparatively yeah. to most of the spectrum. But then above that notch, somewhere above there, you have your Nick Fuentes types who strategically are using that irony and that shit posting to completely obscure their ideology so that they can use it as a shield then to be like, oh, well, I'm not actually this white nationalist. I'm just making Holocaust denial jokes. So like there's definitely a spectrum going on there. And, it, it, and you're right. It is really hard to talk about in any kind of one-to-one way. But I think it does all come from this same place of internet culture where everybody just communicates in this way now because it's what's entertaining and it's how we all just couch our views nowadays. So it's a uh, it is tough to navigate, especially for those figures, like you mentioned, like a, a Sam Harris, who's kind of on the outside looking in, not really participating on the ground necessarily with the, the like, they, you know, rolling in the mud, like all of us do on like the, the Twitter culture war stuff.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I I like where this conversation is <laughs> with,
2: with this spectrum and you have
0: me and Oscar Wilde. At one... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, pe- yeah Peppy the Frog, 4chan people at the other end and the rest of you. I sort of scattered in between. Somebody needs to design uh, like it. it. Like,
2: somebody can submit <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> that,
1: that's a meme but, but of waiting, so, Matt. <laughs> uh, uh,
0: well, look, it, this is going to sound like platitudes, but you know, I, I think it's good to sort of tread lightly and grasp lightly. And I like, I like the humorous ironic mode for, for that. And I also kind of believe in the principle, and you keep seeing this on the internet and with this sort of post button culture we've got, which is every good thing becomes weaponized. And you get the facsimile of the good thing being used for, for nefarious purposes. I mean, we, I mean, just to take, to sort of shift the conversation, thinking about the IDW people and the kind of science and rationality type people, I mean, that's, that's clearly a good thing on the face of it. And you obviously see many people aping that. But really, just arguing for something nonsensical, whether it's the Brett Weinstein, Heather Haying sort of naturalism and crunchiness, or some sort of anarcho libertarian, right wing reactionary politics just sort of smuggled in. So,
2: yeah, that's a not, great that's point. Easy, like, it's co opt across the spectrum among any group. Like, I mean, just like anti vaxxers today, their talking points are much different than they were 10 years ago. We're now. They've kind of evolved to, to talking about, oh, no, we're the pro-science. Like, we really believe in the, the process here. We just don't trust those experts that are getting it wrong. And, like, there's all these different groups that have figured out, like you said, through this weird postmodern, like, language devolving that we're going through. These words, the, these words and terms of how we use them are just um, increasingly difficult to, to really pin down because everybody has kind of figured out how to weaponize them in whatever way suits their, their ideology. Yeah.
1: And I, I, I'm curious, Nathan, you know, there are so many different ecosystems on online, right? And, you know, uh, we spoke a little bit about weird, weird Twitter and brand Twitter as well. And we haven't mentioned yet, but there's each of the platforms has their own ecosystems, right? Like Twitch streaming I've, I've recently started to follow a little bit of the uh japan blogging people on youtube the, you know life in japan and they're also twitch streamers and yeah yeah in entering that world is just like it's it's very interesting because the kind of conventions with the content are different but i i wonder from your like familiarity with the kind of people that we cover plus knowing those worlds are there any like ecosystems in general that you think are very ripe for looking at guru-ish figures, and that maybe have dynamics that are slightly different, you know, from the Jordan Peterson types. But I'm just curious areas that you think would be interesting for us to, to look at, yeah, that we might've overlooked.
2: Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, I'm sure you, you've discussed this at some length across the various figures you've covered, but I think. The one that that always comes back around is essentially gamers and nerds. You know, like gamers as the kind of like cornerstone, like the, the piece that kind of connects all these folks. But then more broadly, uh, people who are gamers who are also like anime fans or people or furries or people who are, you know are in some more Tumblr Reddit esque uh, forum communities that are just kind of really deep online. I think those groups which have really from like the day one of internet culture started to disseminate a lot of the the shit posting style that we're talking about. They are the sort of, in my view, underbelly of a lot of these gurus and these groups. I mean, I'm sure you're both familiar with Gamergate to some degree, which is always referenced when you talk about the online culture wars. And it's interesting because that was a culmination. I mean, for those listening you don't know, I mean, it was essentially, this is 2014 in which there was this scandal where a rumor broke out in the gaming media industry where some journalist was accused of sleeping with, with this other game developer who essentially was, you know, tried, there was some bribery going on for a good review of this indie game. So this word got out in the gaming community, it became this whole Massive controversy that ended up rising to the levels of mainstream media all across, you know, late night shows and, and and major news publications, and that became a a large event that was a predecessor to like the 2016 election cycle and the alt right and the sort of like incel community or manosphere as it's referred to. So there's always like interesting subcultures and groups and 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 a lot of the the. The guru type figures that eventually became notorious in, in years later cut their teeth during this era, like Miley Yiannopoulos and Steve Bannon and Gavin McGinnis and even Shapiro, which he wasn't directly involved in GamerGeek, but like capitalized on a lot of the angst within that community. And like his, a lot of his YouTube videos, like owning college students, correlated with a lot of what was going on there. So, there's all these converging factors and it, like when you really look at the underbelly of what's driving, like when you look at Ben Shapiro's success, like how did Ben Shapiro make it to like mainstream news where now like he's a respected public intellectual and he's interviewing all the top, you know, public intellectuals in the world. And you look early on and it's like a lot of these, these figures were just propped up by like gamers and YouTubers and people doing react content on, on these platforms. So To me, those are the figures who, like you just said, Chris, like with Twitch, like there's this whole massive, massive underbelly that I think uh, normies, for lack of a better term, they don't necessarily see it because like by the time they see it, these figures are on their their favorite big podcasts and shows and, and they're out into the mainstream. But to get there, oftentimes they leverage these gaming communities and these kind of like obscure nerdy online groups, whether it be for, um, like group identity stuff to prop up their own personal brands or it, with reactionary content, like they use the fringe Twitter accounts or college students on campus to then use an, an attack board to then like really drive engagement, like, oh, crazy feminist gets owned at their, at this thing. And those become your viral headlines that then, um, push you in that way. So those are, to me, I mean. In online culture, it's no secret that those are like the underbelly subcultures that prop up this stuff. But I think a lot of folks who are existing more in the ecosystem of like your Joe Rogan's and your Jordan Peterson's today, unless they were around five, six, seven, eight years ago, and a lot of this stuff was baking, they might just see it on the surface like, oh yeah, these are just like public intellectuals that came out of nowhere. And, you know, they got insightful stuff to say. But meanwhile, there's this whole history that goes back pretty pretty long time, even including like with the, the new atheist sphere. I mean, this stuff, it, it has a lot of history in internet culture. So it, yeah. there's,
1: there's one example that I think a recent one, which kind of reflects the opposite dynamics of somebody coming from a, a little bit, I mean, it's not mainstream, but the young Turks is an online media platform and Hassan Piker, Piker, yep, right, Hassan Piker, Piker, Piker yeah. right. Yeah. He was involved. There, like, I'd, I haven't followed his career, but I got the thing that he was like a on-screen personality and and had some shows, and then made some controversial comments about Dan Crenshaw and yep. like uh, how he got the the eye patch, and then was chastised by his uncle chenk Unger. Yep, chenk Yeah. Oh,
2: damn. Yeah,
1: yeah. But after that, has now become like a huge Twitch streamer, right? With with like, a kind of left this band, but the same thing. The, the thing that gets me about this is like, you know, the connection to gamers is very clear because a lot of Twitch streaming, is just people playing games or interviewing people even while they're playing games. And like the amount that I know that it's, there's like a very long tail where there's a lot of people in those ecosystems who aren't making money, the vast majority of people on them. Right. But the the people at the top are making so much. Money. Oh yeah. And I think PewDiePie is now somebody, you know, on YouTube who, even though he isn't a mainstream figure he had so many profiles done on him that people know him but i i think that a lot of these other alternative ecosystem people they're hugely influential they've got millions and millions of uh, people in their audience but they're like under the attention line for mainstream media until they pop through with some controversy i don't uh, i don't want to yeah. like
2: drive us too off course here but i will give you the hassan lore cuz i'm very i've followed his career from the beginning and Ironically, you're half right in that he had his big kind of mainstream breaks from a lot of his comments, like America deserved 911 and the, the, uh, yeah, yeah. the Dan Crenshaw eye patch thing that did land him like in mainstream media criticism and all that. However, he actually did build his entire current audience, which is predominantly on Twitch on the backs of the gaming community because Chank Uger is his uncle and he, he had like an internship with the Young Turks and then tried to have his own show there. And it just wasn't picking up steam. Like it just wasn't super successful. So he then branched off to do his own thing on Twitch and he befriended the Twitch streamer Destiny who founded Twitch Politics, which is now this kind of larger ecosystem of streamers who all just talk about culture wars and, and political topics. So he, Destiny... Actually, um, live on his stream, reviewed Hassan debating Charlie Kirk at a politicon, and basically critiqued him the whole way because Hassan Piker did really not a great job in this debate. And then Hassan reached out. I think that was the the dynamic. As Hassan reached out then because he saw that Destiny had the the biggest audience in like the the political community at the time to like essentially you know collaborate. And then those two ended up having this relationship dynamic where. They did a bunch of like debate shows on Twitch and because Hassan had this kind of pre-existing clout from the Young Turks and he was like a model, there was this interesting dynamic between the two of them. And they eventually had a falling out like a year or two after that. And then that's when around the time those comments were made. So he kind of like, he had this kind of two-fold approach where he like hit the mainstream from his provocative comments, but even to this day, I mean, like what he's most known for and like what pays his paychecks is his Twitch audience, which is all Gamers and people who watch gamers on that platform, and he still does some political coverage, but I know he's steered largely away from it the past like year or two. Other other than when there's like a big, you know, moment in the news or or whatever. But yeah, it's interesting. Like even even with him, I mean, like it's just it's gamers all the way down. I guess is what I'm saying. You know. <laughs> well, um what you guys are describing
0: is a kind of a pipeline, right? From a medium that's entertainment and totally casual to certain people getting selected from that reservoir and find themselves like a voice talking about quite serious things right with strong ideological or political overtones and you know it's a slightly different example but you made me think of jp sears Mm -hmm. who got his start producing pure light entertainment the kind of thing that people would just look at extremely casually for 30 seconds on their phone and then move on on youtube and now you find him Giving speeches at anti-vax rallies and, you know, engaging in the most hyperbolic partisan rhetoric in a deadly serious manner and taken very seriously by this broader audience. And, you know, it's kind of a a frightening image, isn't it? Because one of your threads, Nathan, you talked about memes and the history of memes and, and how it all works. And there are some things in Internet culture that are old and some things that are new. But I think one thing that is new that is a little bit scary is that these communities function as a kind of reservoir a, an incubator to select for and essentially train certain people to produce the most virulent memes <laughs> um yeah so it's kind of a frightening image yeah. <laughs> yeah
2: everything is memes now i mean it's like if you can um become the meme or if you can be the meme curator or if your community is like kind of like an aggregator of memes yeah they're I mean, yeah, like from the 2016 election onward, I mean, I think now it's become like a, uh, a legitimate study academically where people are actually starting to try to like understand better, like the sort of medium of information as it, as it spreads and it gets weaponized politically and, and culturally in, in so many different ways. And, and it is like you're saying, I think the scary part of it is the speed in which that has taken on a cultural force and the especially older generations, like I'm 30, I would say really anybody older than me. I mean, like 35 and up, it is increasingly difficult to understand all this stuff. Like I think the sort of image that most folks have of memes at this point, the extent to which is like, oh yeah, I see this thing on my Facebook feed or whatever, or somebody sends me this funny thing. It's got text on an image and, and that's really it. But people aren't they don't have like a critical analysis of like where, where those images come from, how they get made, you know, how easy is it to make one? Like, how can you fake things and all that? Like, it's all, it all happens so quickly and the, the sort of rate of our media literacy is just nowhere near where it needs to be to kind of keep up with, um, where this thing is going with how powerful they are, you know?
1: I remember in the 2016 election cycle that like some Trump Meme guys like kind of reaching prominence to a certain extent, right? A relatively low level, but they were still being sought out for, you know, comments and interviews because they were producing like shit posty memes for the Donald. And it's not the same thing, but whenever Jordan Peterson had uh, Tanahasi Coates put him into the Captain America comic, right? basically made the Red Skull say what Jordan Peterson was saying. I thought that's a good example because like Jordan Peterson reacted with outrage, right? In a kind of furious, you know, what the hell is this? But I imagine people in his orbit or it's somebody, because he very quickly seemed to pivot to, oh, let's, Let's like adopt the Hydra image into something that we can sell, and the same thing with like putting the lobsters on a tie and yep. stuff. And it, I feel like there is a constant battlefield or or danger if people produce memes to criticize someone or do something, you know, to kind of mock them. That there's a good chance that that will just get flipped around and become like a thing that they sell. So it's it it is this weird landscape, and I I feel increasingly that people talking about, you know, well, that's Twitter and that's not real life, but like the amount of people in the world that are not online, especially in developed countries is increasingly very low, right? And they might not be too online in the kind of communities that we're talking about and aware of that. But I think we're in a very different world now where you could ignore what the online ecosystem was doing. I'm promoting and, you know, most of the things that will end up on Tucker Carlson or that kind of thing, you can find them a couple of months before in these weird subcultures and and increasingly rather disturbingly, it's often info wars.
2: Yeah, they bleed into each other constantly. Even the flip side of that, which is just the people who, like myself, who kind of grew up with internet culture are now, they're becoming adults and they're actually working at a lot of like, whether it's media companies, just companies in general, like your Netflixes, you know, like, so these are people who grew up in this, this worldview and they're engaged in these culture war activities or whatever and meme making, and now they're actually beginning to get influence within corporations and like publications. And it's creating like a whole new dynamic where like that pipeline of information, whether it's memes or ideology or whatever, it's getting a lot shorter where those lines definitely blur. And, I, and ironically, like, to what you were just saying earlier about this sort of like co-opting of this stuff, like that's where personally I've gotten the most ire. It's predominantly from left-leaning people or leftists, I should say, for the stake of account is is the idea that through the sort of style of posting that we do, it's like commodifying. We're just co-opting their language. Like they're, Like the shit posting to them is like, it's not just a way of writing like it's almost like an identity feature you know just like this is mm. how our group speaks to each other so now when brands start to do that it poisons it in a way or you could say the same with celebrities like it's like when a celebrity posts a meme it's like the meme is dead instantly or or what do you know what I mean but celebrities brands whatever and it, that's where i've i've definitely drawn the most ire from people is just people who de- see it's not it's not the content that staken would publish it's not the self-awareness or whatever it's actually like you are directly taking from our culture almost like appropriating it in a way and yeah i mean it's it's calmed down now that i'm not running the account i mean i got swatted i had the secret service show up at my house at one point because some Shit. some person uh they made like a fake account and put my name on it and s- said i was gonna kill the president and like they, they the secret service took it seriously um i've had a. Uh, I've had a bunch of people like, yeah, doxing and all sorts of death threats and that type of thing. And it's all come out of that sort of whatever you want to call it, like dirtbag left ecosystem of like of shit posters where it's just people who are looking at what the brand is doing and they, they hate it. I mean, they think it's just the worst thing to them because uh, while all these other like abstract political events might be happening in the world that may have an effect on them, like whether it's healthcare or whatever, I'm sure like obviously there's an, an impact. But there's only so much they can do. It's not like they don't have like a direct line necessarily besides voting to like do something about it. Whereas with this account, it's like it's on Twitter so they can go after the account. It's very accessible. They can find me by just Googling me. So like it was a very interesting, um, interesting time. And it made me realize how seriously these people take uh, their memes, you know. You're
0: gonna have oh. to stop talking, Nathan, because my mum listens to the podcast and she's already worried about <laughs> this kind
2: of thing. <laughs> if it hasn't my, happened to you yet, with all with all the fan bases you've stoked, I'm sure you're
1: okay. <laughs> uh, Mad, I don't think can the Australian government swap people? Do you have that? ability
0: No, they send around some kangaroos or something (laughs) i don't know what they do exactly
1: i'm i'm probably relatively safe here as well because i don't think people can navigate good good japanese (laughs) info spheres so yeah now i've just said that that's that's a bad thing great say that the people yeah you always always want to make challenges the people online that's That's, the thing
0: Yep. Yeah. <laughs> to anyone listening to this who's thinking about doxing me I, I could change <laughs> I could <can> do better
2: <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I, mean, I mean sorry
2: <laughs> don't, you don't <laughs> need to the secret to police That was
1: ironic whatever he you said did annoyed you that was irony
2: <laughs> you have to tell them to dox you because then they won't they won't do it then and it's ironic and they, they won't be a challenge but that's right
1: Matt yeah the, the one thing that Matt would really would just be mundane for him a walk in the park as if he was swatted <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That just sent <laughs> me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's, I mean, that's, it's somewhat insane to be honest. I didn't know that. Then like the fact that you were, you know, targeted for swatting, which, which carries with it, the potential in America is a unique country in this respect that like you run the risk when engaging with special forces that the wrong signal could be a sign that you need to be
2: gunned down. Absolutely. And like It's terrifying. That's, and, I, and that's yeah. why I don't post about, I mean, I shouldn't even have said it on this podcast, but it's all. I, I don't actively post about it to draw too much attention to it. I've told the story here and there, but it's just, uh, it is, like you said, one of those things where you don't want to feed, you know, like as it's happening, like that's what the trolls want. Like you're literally feeding the trolls and then giving, you're amplifying that attention and giving them the thing that they want. So they're like, oh, this is a target that we had everything that we just did worked. So now we can like, you know, repeat it until they stop, essentially, you know?
1: You don't need to worry because in the one thing I've discovered with long form podcasting is people don't, <laughs> 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 like, they might, you know, if someone else goes through and catalogs and clips out, that's fine. But people don't go and check content. Yeah. It's one of the weirdest things that Matt and I have noticed is that often people will, they'll have very high-minded defenses of Alex Jones' content and have no fucking idea what his content is actually like, right? You know, somebody can bring up what he does and people are like, what does he do that? And you're like, well, why are you, (laughs) why do you have a very strong position on, you know, whether his banning was reasonable or not? If you'd know none of the specific reasons, but that just seems to be a common thing. So yeah, Yeah. I'm just, I don't think you need to worry about. Uh, I'm not worried. Our, Nobody our does team. the
2: real work to to docs these days, and and I feel like you have to find like just the most extreme of the extreme people, because like I mean, I'm sure you guys get this all the time. Like I did some tweet a few months ago when Tim Pool had Alex Jones and Joe Rogan on his sh- live show. It was like in like a trailer, and I think I was one of the first people to tweet that that was happening while it was happening. So my tweet, and I was kind of mocking it. So my tweet became like the tweet that everybody was quote tweeting and doing their mm. commentary on, and eventually, of course, this made I think like Michael malice quote tweet in it, and then eventually all of those kind of like alt center far right people flooded in and you you, know, you start getting all the insane comments, like people messaging my Facebook account, all oh, this like weird you're like, why are you searching me on Google or Facebook and like looking for other ways to message me?" See, there's always ways to tap in to those those kind of more extreme groups if, if you push the right buttons, but generally they they don't go that far unless you've done something really bad.
1: <laughs> so if we, you're saying even if, if we follow your advice and we cover Destiny, we're fucked.
2: <laughs> I, it it, it depends on how you cover him. I mean, he's got a uh, yeah, very. They call themselves the Taliban. Like it's a it's a very it's a very it's it's a meme, but like yeah, they're very loyal online community to say the least
1: yeah that's that's interesting well i i could literally just probe your mind for the rest of the day about like the minutiae of various online communities but we probably should let you uh return to your actual life or online life but i'm kind of curious even like so you're not doing the stecums account anymore are you planning like are you still in I don't know what that's called, like brand management, like or, management. and uh, relatedly, I, I I, guess if you went to another brand and like started posting threads about conspiracy theories and stuff, it, it wouldn't have the same impact, but you seem to be someone who genuinely has an interest in that area. So a kind of second part of that question is just, are you planning to continue doing stuff in the field of misinformation or online stuff or is that just a personal interest
2: yeah it that is a good question because i've been wrestling with this for a couple of years now honestly i mean i've worked in marketing for almost a decade at this point it's just day job pays the bills and now the stakeum thing obviously has kind of elevated a lot of my public image i guess and more people know about my work but obviously like, like you just alluded to most of what interests me is this kind of internet culture and culture war space. And I've done a lot of just personal writing about it, which I should also note, if anybody is, has made it this far into the show, if you Google brand Twitter, it's either the first or the second thing that will come up on Google is an article in Vulture magazine. I wrote in 2019, that's like a history of kind of all this stuff from brand Twitter, it's, it's decent. I mean, I, it took me and the editors a long time to compile for anybody who w- wants to deep dive the weirdness of, of brands
1: we'll put but, it in the show notes yeah okay yeah, perfect people say
2: perfect but yeah so i, I don't like i i am i am really interested in misinfo and media literacy and like in this space and i've been writing a lot of articles about it and like considering different angles for a book at some point it's just it is tough on top of the day job so i'm, I'm just trying to figure out you know which uh which direction to take because i'm definitely much more interested in this and obviously i was able to leverage my interest in these things through that brand account. So we'll see, I guess, how those things maybe um, collide in, in the coming years. But as of now, I'm just kind of doing the the commentary and, and the writing on the side as more hobbyism. Um, so we'll see.
0: Well, yeah, well, from, from both of us, I'll just say that uh, I think the kind of stuff that you did through that stake account was was really fantastic and yeah for, for listeners if you want to pop on twitter and, and just read that sort of mega meta thread of threads there's good material in there and we'll link to some of your other materials and uh yeah so from decoding the gurus we hope you do find the time to keep yeah. doing more of this stuff because we like it it gets the seal of approval from us
2: that's huge that's everything to me i mean love, love, <laughs> yeah. love you guys this show i mean yeah you, you're doing great work and it's it's uh vital deconstruction that it's unfortunately not common enough i think in these online spaces especially within the, the the figures that you approach so i'm a big fan and i really appreciate you uh you have me on for this
1: careful nathan sincerity and and praise it's...
2: i told you i'm trying to become more of a sincere poster this is uh i'm trying to escape the irony-brained uh posting, but uh it's
1: I, I, I will say that there's, we often have this trouble that like at the end of interviews, you know, that we want to sincerely say that we like the person's content and we like them, but we've often previously just explained a couple of people being, you know, overly fawning. And, Super and Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And it, it, I always like, you know, I feel it, it kind of burning in my soul when people say sincere nice things. But in any case, we we did and do really like the stuff that you put out. And, and also it was really great to talk to you about this stuff. I've been trying to arrange it for my terrible <laughs> arranging skills for like half a year. So, so thanks for coming on and I'm sure we, it would be great to have you back at some time whenever there's more mentalness in the online sphere, which is always so.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure again. I, I appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, I can't wait to chat again. Thanks so much, Nathan. See you next time. Ciao.
1: Well, Matt, Nathan, what a man. How many insights? <laughs> many things. What was your favorite? What was your favorite one? <laughs> I, I enjoyed it all. I can't really point out any specific thing that he, he said. Well, it would
0: be doing it a justice. If we pulled out specific good things that he said, it, it would be an injustice no. to the other things that we couldn't mention, so it's best not it to would... be specific. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> you know full well that was weeks ago, and I can't remember what happened yesterday. So, oh, I will spoiling,
1: not... pulling back the curtain, mate.
0: But I do remember that I liked the cut of his jib, and yeah, I, I feel like um, I, I'm just envious of the next brand that he's going to be accounting for.
1: Agreed, and uh, so much. That time of the evening where we dip into our reviews for our review of reviews,
0: review of reviews. God damn it!
1: <laughs> it's getting closer. It's getting, yeah, getting closer. getting there. One day,
0: um, it's like it's like a Zeno's hare or tortoise, whatever it is. You'll, you you yeah. get closer and closer, but you never quite get there.
1: I've I've got a good negative one this time. It's a serious one. It's not like a you know a comedy negative one, and it's by iOS rational user okay okay <laughs> so it's a rational critique as well mm. and the the title is projection question mark mhm mm. one star i love listening to academics talking about all gurus except the covert ones in academia wouldn't it be more enriching if instead of projecting our own psychological need for recognition we spent more time reflecting on how science actually evolved through history? Have you considered how philosophy developed before it became mainstream? What about medicine? Did you know there are countries where people trust ancient healers more than MDs? Anyway, the need for gurus will always exist, especially in academia, where you reach enlightenment when you get your fist PhD, he wrote fist. Good luck with your spiritual path towards humility. Unstuck.
0: One star. Oh, oh.
1: Yeah. well, he's got a different. That that was a journey, wasn't it? It was a, like a from <laughs> traditional healers, the mainstream <laughs> philosophers today. Nothing like the you know <laughs>
0: the scrappy street Back philosophers. In my yeah. Day. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I think I the, think he's talking about Socrates or somebody. Wow, that was there. That was a journey. I felt vistas opening up as I listened to that. I
1: I don't think he ever really got this point. Like, I thought it was going to at the Islam in the academia, but it kind of tailed off. It
0: was sort of wistful in the end. It was, you know, what if?
1: Yeah. (laughs) Good luck with your spiritual humility. Mm. Our path towards humility. Mm. What is it, the history of science? What was it we need to
0: study the history? Yeah, the history
1: of science. That was an all-wonderful one. He said, uh, wouldn't it be more enriching instead of projecting our own psychological need for recognition?
0: Don't know.
1: I I guess he's saying, you know, we are... The egomaniacs, not Eric Weinstein. We spent more time reflecting on how science actually evolved through history. Could this have been written by Eric?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't put it past him. Uh, No, no, um, that doesn't have his distinctive tone. I, I can recognize Eric could never go undercover because he cannot change his tone. I would. Spot him a Free mile float off. 55. Free float fifty five. We're right up to you. Uh, no, 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 no. You're no, just no, no. a normal guy. Yeah, just normal. It's just a guy. it's just a fan. Uh, it's just a, a big fan. Just a fan.
1: Um so but anyway, thank you for that. It was an interesting review. And and despite the negativity, I I accept it with spiritual humility and insight. With love.
0: Um, with love. well yeah, with how, love. How, how would Lex Friedman accept that um review?
1: Well, he'd talk about that. He doesn't mean anybody anything bad, and he just wants everyone to come together in love and to. Uh, he hopes to do his best to make that possible. Mm.
0: Beautiful, beautiful sentiments. Good. Next review.
1: Um. Okay. Hateful overthinker. <laughs> More my kind of speed. Hateful <laughs> overthinker, and. It's titled, These Hoppy Fruits Saved My Brain From Certain
0: Death. Oh, I know this is going to be a good one. Hoppy Fruits. Hope you get that reference, yeah. Chris.
1: It's, it's sort of long, and I haven't read it, so I'm just going to blast through this, Matt, and see where it takes us. When I wasn't busy over the last year and a half working furiously on my own pod, the history of rock and roll in film and rock and roll,
0: He's, he's, he's stuck in an advertisement to his own pod into the review, the cunning bastard. All right.
1: I, I didn't know if it was a joke or not because it's a repetition, but okay. anyway, maybe, maybe. I was constantly lamenting the inevitable radicalization and shillmongering, as well as the emergence of ill or fake or unearned self-righteous anger that took hold of a great number of podcasters and public speakers I had previously considered to be worth listening to now and then. That was one sentence, (laughs) that's so, um, my listening habits veered wildly from things like Tuesday with stories to the Jim Cornette experience so that I could enjoy hosts that A had natural chemistry with each other and B were deeply entrenched in a profession I will never take part in, but I'm always fascinated by. Well, Matt and Chris easily scratched that itch as well, but they also helped to reinvigorate my brainwave activity. And provide thoughtful tools to evaluate and protect myself against the gurus that most certainly would have had their hooks in me if I was born a few years later than I was and hadn't grown up distrustful of the nineteen nineties new age crystal mongers and then become a fan of pen.
0: Pen with pen? two oh, pen and Teller. Pen. For pen of pen and Teller. Of oh, pen.
1: Yeah. That's what it yeah. is. Yeah, yeah, I was like, fan of pen <laughs> <You're>
0: just like <laughs> yeah. that's like saying I love lamp <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> fan of pen
1: I was almost there but became big fan of book <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's a nice review is is there more or is it, it no that was that the was end the just
1: end. the fan of pen was the <laughs> end but yeah it was nice you know it's very nice he, he's obviously talking about us being masters of psychology and academia that he gets insight to. so you know, good that's man. that's accurate. That's pretty good. And, uh, yeah, the, you know, it's got pop culture references. It's got... Uh,
0: Autobiographical details.
1: Long sentences. <laughs> it's got a lot. So, five stars. That's it, man. Love it.
0: That's our review. Good review. Thank you. You hateful food. Hateful food. Is it the account name? Or the? that's the...
1: No, no. Uh, I just gave him ah, that. It was hateful overthinker. Ah, good stuff. <laughs> I feel called out. But, yeah. So... That's a review of reviews for this week. Um, um, There is something that we need to do. We sometimes forget to do, but mostly we do it, where we let our patrons know that they matter to us, mm. that we care, yep. and that we are thankful for their ritual sacrifice for our common good. So would you have any objection to shouting out some of our Patreon members Far
0: from it I insist
1: That's good So This week Matt We have In The Galaxy Brain Guru Space A number of people Rob Leslie Jr Josephine Patricia Matthew Piggott I think he's been Said before But never mind He got (laughs) us again Moses Mohammed Loki and Bertrand Sparling, he definitely has, but he's getting called out again,
0: Bertrand again. That's what you get. You, you <laughs> cunning, you cunning man, Bertrand. You snuck in there again. Very good, very good. And you pronounced their names pretty well, Chris. Well done. Maybe you are getting better.
1: Not too bad. Mm. Not too bad this time.
2: You're sitting on one of the great scientific stories that I've ever heard. And you're so polite.
5: And, hey, wait a minute. Am I an expert? I kind of am.
1: (laughs) Yeah.
2: (laughs) I don't trust people at all.
1: Yep. Now, revolutionary geniuses. Uh, A fine collection of them this week. Watch this, Matt. Caleb Catlett, River Pebbles, Jonathan Cano, Etienne, Rasterisk, Robert Chapman-Smith, William Morse, Kit McLean, Kevin Nyberg, Jennifer Nelson, Gregory Mandel, James Glover, Tom McIney, n- McCarney.
0: <laughs> uh, 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 I'm almost glad to hear the last one, Chris, because I was about to ask like, who are you and what have you done with my co-host?" Yeah, yeah you were enunciating so well, and then like, "Ah, there you are, Chris. There he is.
1: Well, I'll, I'll call it a stop there, because I flew to, to. Coast to the sun. You did, you did. (laughs) Maybe you can spit out that
5: hydrogenated thinking and let yourself feed off of your own thinking.
2: What you really are is an unbelievable thinker and researcher, a thinker
0: that the world doesn't know. Okay, Chris, so this time, no hubris. Mm -hmm. You have to crawl before we can run. Mm -hmm. Take it slow and steady. You can do this. You can do it.
1: Okay. So we got Stefan Lejeune. Stefan Lejeune. Uh, Anton Samsa. Anton Samsa. <laughs> Peter Kerr. Peter Kerr. Nico Pomata. <laughs> Nico Pomata. <laughs> 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 you realize you're saying uh, them all
0: twice. Is that intentional?
1: That <laughs> that's, yeah. that's what you forced me to do. Tulsa 420. 420. Okay. 420. Tulsa or 20, Christy McCormick, Lauren Leinhardt, and Liam Bruce. Very, very, Good day, Bruce. Good day, Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Welcome to. These
1: are our conspiracy hypothesizers. That
0: they are. That they are. Every great idea starts with a minority of one. We are not going to advance conspiracy theories. We will advance conspiracy hypotheses.
1: Yes, we will. And if you want to be like them, you can join the Patreon. We have bonus content there. We release our Gurometer episodes where we uh, try to quantify after we do the episodes on the Gurus and we put out Decoding Academia bonuses about papers or research that we find interesting and and other such fun stuff, live hangouts and whatnot. So you can go there. We have a subreddit. We have a Facebook group, an Instagram account, a Reddit, a subreddit, <laughs> a Discord. That's it. We have we're easy to find online. We're yep. we're not that hard to find. Yep.
0: Yep. And a Twitter. Yep. Only if your Peugeot is Chris hard to find. Otherwise, for the rest of you who can Google. We're just, uh, just a just <laughs> You can't avoid just me. a few keystrokes away.
1: <laughs> yeah, he should listen. Maybe I'll send him this episode. Um <laughs> but, Yeah. So Next time, I promise, I won't engage my petty grievances. But uh, I thank you for that today, Matt. And yeah, so watcha, watcha, note the disc, accord the gin. <laughs>
0: yep, I'll make my peace with both of them. Uh, over and out. Thanks, everyone.
1: Ciao, ciao. ciao, 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 ciao. ciao. Okay, I'm going to hit the button or smash the duck.